Welcome to this podcast recording from the 2022 POD, Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery Conference on Zeitgeist Fireside Chat. The POD conference is produced by the Conference Forum. For more information, please visit podconference.com. Enjoy the podcast recording from POD 2022. For Zeitgeist Fireside Chat, let me welcome up my co-moderator for this conversation, Annette Bach. Please come on up. And of course, Nicholas Warren, the person you're here to actually hear from. So we're going to do our best to keep him on his toes. And I feel like the, the last talk was sort of a nice introduction of some of the challenges of delivering uh, SIRNA and fits right in with what we're going to be talking about. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good morning. You want to just start with a bit of an introduction so everyone understands your, your role at Pfizer? Sure. Where we're going with today's yep. talk? So my name is uh, Nick Warren. I lead the uh, pharmaceutical R&D group. So we're the drug product folks on the biotech side of the house uh, at Pfizer. Uh, I'm based out of Andover, Massachusetts and been there for 32 years. Fantastic. Well, you know, today's conversation is really focused on Pfizer and your response for the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so we might just jump right in, right? Because it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, hopefully, for all of us, uh, and has you know, fundamentally shifted the industry's thinking about how, well, not just RNA and vaccines, but how we can deliver against different programs. So you know, maybe you can give us just a few of your thoughts about how Pfizer is different today than it was before. And I know when we first chatted, you mentioned some cultural elements that have sort of played out in that uh, evolution, if you will. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. I mean, if we go back to early... 2020, when COVID just started showing up at each of our companies, including Pfizer, um, we immediately had to get some priorities sorted out if we were going to get into working on a COVID RNA LNP. And our chairman, Albert Borla, did a great job rallying the troops and saying there's three priorities. Uh, One, we've got to take care of our people. So if you're not manufacturing or lab-based, go home, work from home. I ended up working from my basement. Um, Second keep producing. You know, we all have responsibility to keep producing products that are essential for healthcare. So you can't take your foot off the gas in the labs or in the manufacturing areas. And three, solve the problem. So that clear prioritization, putting safety first, health first, and then the rest of our customers, we have the rest of the pipeline to maintain in addition to dealing with COVID. Uh, And then finally get on with COVID. So I think that was the, the clarifying moment right up front. I think the second aspect is speed. We recognized that we couldn't take, if it takes us, say, nine years to develop a traditional vaccine, that wasn't going to work. There was clearly a sense of urgency. And so Albert and his leadership team, as well as our local team, um, I'll use the word encouraged us to go faster. Um, It was hard. There was a lot of uh, push. You can go faster. You can do better. You're faster than you think you are. You're better than you think you are. And so there was a huge cultural element of that, as well as just the ability to leverage resources that you might not have had. We, we call this, uh, if you look at Albert's book, a so-called light speed project. Unlimited resources, unlimited funding, unlimited people, unlimited facilities, let's get the job done. And so by doing that, if you look at, say, the, the area under the curve of a traditional vaccine over nine years, that costs about $2 billion to develop. What we did in nine months also cost $2 billion. So the area under the curve is the same. The spend is the same, but you have to compress that time substantially, 10x effectively, in order to get the job done. So from a cultural point of view, 
we had to take roughly a tenth of the company, 7,000 people, and say, you're all in. And multiple manufacturing facilities, development labs, completely changed the way we worked. Uh, our lab groups, you know, formulation labs, our, our teams, in order to keep the density down in the labs, we went to a two-shift operation. So running a lab, you'd have first shift coming in from, say, uh, 7 till 3, and then 3 till 10. In the, the labs that were analyzing the clinical data from the pivotal studies, that's 40,000-person vaccines pivotal study, that was robotics going 24-7. Uh, and we normally wouldn't do that because you normally don't have to do that. But under these circumstances, and I think this is a lesson that we have to take back, um, you have to move quicker. You have to be more agile. You have to pick the right molecule. RNA is a perfect molecule because it's so agile and it's allowed us to compress timelines uh, substantially to get the right tailored vaccine to the right tailored antigen that we want to attack. So a lot of this has to do with the culture, the speed, and also having the facilities and the talent that we could leverage. It's incredible. I mean, the, the journey that you've described and that was described in the, the book is just, you know, it's, it's hard for a lot of us to appreciate. You know, I, I know when things first got started, my wife was asking me about, like, do you think people can hit some of these timelines? I was like, it's impossible. Large pharma is never going to deliver on any of these timelines. And you, I think you've proven a lot of people wrong. And AstraZeneca and many other companies delivering in the same way have, you know, created a new sense of what's possible. Yeah, really impressive, I agree. And, and really that at-risk investment. Uh, so um, can you talk about how that requires buy-in from stakeholders, how that was done real-time, and how it may have influenced uh, decision-making and risk-taking in Pfizer for the future? Yeah, I think that's great. So if we take a look at um, when we got started, so January, February, mm -hmm. Things are starting to head south. Our senior leadership, most of them are, the company's base is 42nd Street, uh, East 42nd in Manhattan. So our senior executives would come out of their apartment buildings and they would see refrigeration truck 18-wheelers as temporary morgues. Mm. That had their attention and that got our attention. So there was a sense of urgency. and It's like, let's go. We signed a deal with our colleagues at BioNTech on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. And at that point, we were already on the go trying to figure out, uh, we already knew we wanted to go with RNA because of its scalability and its flexibility, but we didn't know which construct. So we, we planned on taking four separate constructs, so four separate RNA LNPs into the clinic in parallel, in a small limited clinical study to figure out which of, the, which of those four we wanted to take forward. Normally, you wouldn't do this. You wouldn't put four constructs into the clinic at the same time, but there was a sense of urgency. Let's go. So we did that, we picked one, dropped the other three, and moved forward. That being said, by taking that risk and doing four in parallel, we had to be prepared to commercialize any of those four and to scale them up at a, at a full-fledged, full-scale manufacturing facility to ultimately make uh, a few hundred million, and then in 2021, uh, effectively make three billion doses for a global market recognizing that we had to serve not just the U.S., Western Europe, Japan, but we had to serve uh, the world. And so we had to do this in a very cost-effective manner. And so I think those are some of the challenges that prodded us to say, let's take the risk, spend the money, three of those compounds will go nowhere, that's okay, as long as one of them works. And it's the same thing with manufacturing facilities. Uh, we went into, um, let's say, the storage. I mean, 
I think it's been public news uh, that we have a stability issue with a lot of RNA LNPs. They're transported on dry ice, they're stored under minus 80 with, let's say, 10 weeks in the fridge at a pharmacist. Um, that was a huge logistics challenge that we had to overcome. We didn't know what the answer was going to be in March of 2020, but we had to get it sorted out by the summer so that we could begin producing products in the autumn of 2020 and ultimately launch post-EUA in December. Yeah, I mentioned to you before, I love that idea of discovering a problem like not being able to get enough dry ice and then just buckling down and building a facility to make dry ice so that you have enough. And I, I know a lot of our audience are small companies just getting started and it's a similar mentality of what's the problem, how can I address this regardless of what it is to move things forward. So it's a testament to you know, some of the activities at Pfizer. You know, we talked a lot about the speed of delivery, and obviously, uh, well, I mean, even take a step back, I, when I was talking to some of the folks yesterday, we talked about our travel plans and cutbacks, you know, budgets are, for travel are half of what they were because, you know, this difference in thought process, you know, what we can do remotely. Now you're talking about a difference in thought process about what's possible in a given amount of time. And, you know, delivering things fast is always exciting always the first thing that's asked of every program. But, you know, what are the sort of benefits and drawbacks on that? Because I, I can imagine a, a lot of staff that's being asked to deliver during a pandemic, whatever's necessary, I'm going to do. Okay, we're moving beyond that. Now this is just a program that was, you know, tiering or however you describe your uh, ranking within Pfizer. So how, what do you see within the, the staff and how do you guys think about the speed of programs beyond the, uh, the pandemic? Yeah, I think there's two aspects to it. One is cultural, <clears throat> the other is operational. On a cultural point of view, it was clear to us that COVID was a big deal. We needed to get going. Let's go. So put every resource you need, no questions asked. If you need funding, uh, our CEO had meetings every uh, twice a week at 4 o'clock. We'd get on the phone. This is my ask. I need $50 million for such and such a job. Everybody agree? Boom. Done. Let's go. So you had that very good decision-making, crisp decision-making, which is absolutely critical for some of the major decisions. But I think from a cultural point of view, the team was on board. Everybody was all in. As you extend that to other diseases, other disease states, rare disease, inflammation, vaccines, et cetera, there is a sense that patients are waiting. And I think we need to keep that front and center. Uh, we will occasionally ask our teams to accelerate the development of a program. If you get a, a phase one signal that looks encouraging, it's not unusual to skip phase twos, go right to a pivotal, and normally, as a, as a development scientist, we would have that one or two year window of phase twos to figure out, well, what is my phase three product going to look like? What's my phase three cell culture and purification process and analytical kit going to look like? That may not exist. So we have to figure out, you know, what if you don't do phase twos? You go from a phase one small exploratory study into a pivotal study, and then you need to be ready without having a lot of life cycle management after launch. And so... It's taught us, I think, to be a bit more forward-looking, to leverage prior knowledge much more aggressively. You know, if you've done 10 monoclonal antibodies and number 11 comes along and it behaves the same as the prior 10, how do you leverage that experience from the prior 10 to reduce the burden on the labs and on the manufacturing facility, reduce the regulatory burden to do number 11 and streamline that so you can get going much more quickly? And the same may be said for RNA, for vaccines, for anything where you can platform. How do you leverage that prior knowledge? And we're doing that right now with the RNA LNPs. And this is a great example, especially for a drug delivery audience. I mean, obviously for 
vaccines, drug delivery, as we just heard, delivery, 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 key. In other areas, it's nice to have, it's providing differentiation, it's providing direct patient benefit, but we have to keep in mind that speed to patient is a very real benefit. And so moving programs more quickly, even at the expense of maybe introducing a better for patient um, opportunity in life cycle management is a viable path. Yeah, I think the, and we've seen that with, with some other compounds where you are quick to license, but maybe not with the perfect product. But if the patients benefit from that somewhat imperfect delivery system, that's okay because patients are realizing that benefit. And then recognizing that you're in a competitive environment, we can optimize in the post-license space. The key is making sure that you get the funding, the resources, and the, re the ROI is positive on that life cycle management. That could be a challenge. So ultimately, if we can get it right the first time, it's, it's a lot easier um, and it's a lot quicker. But sometimes if you're going very quickly, that's not going to be the case. Great, great learnings. Um, so moving on, you talked about the LNP. This is a drug delivery conference. So let's uh, dwell into uh, the LNP in, in, in a bit more details and the CMC and drug delivery. You recently had a nice article in journal of pharmaceutical sciences summarizing the journey from a pharmaceutical sciences perspective. So I wonder if you can share, briefly summarize some of, the, uh, of these learnings for us and also what lessons from that journey that you now apply to other therapeutic uh, programs at Pfizer. Yeah, I think the LNP has been an interesting story for us. Um, when we got started early in 2020, the, the process that was being used to make preclinical supplies or early stage clinical supplies was really a lab scale process, mm -hmm. maybe 50 mils or 100 mils, mm -hmm. a couple of HPLC pumps and a, a, an impenching jet mixer or a tea mixer. If you have an HPLC, you effectively have a very similar system in your lab right now. Um, and then we had the four lipids, two of which are proprietary, two of which are commodity. What we recognized early on was we were gonna have a number of issues with these from a very practical point of view. Uh, first of all, the IJ, the impinging jet mixer worked really well for lab scale. Mm. We need to make three billion doses next year. Mm. And you couldn't scale those up, so we ended up scaling them out. Mm. So you've seen photographs of our skids, instead of having a gigantic HPLC, or two pumps with a really large mixer, we have in parallel eight pairs of mm. pumps with eight impinging jet mixers all making LNP. So mm -hmm. we recognized that we couldn't scale up as much as we had to scale out mm -hmm. when it came to the LNP. So that was something that we had to learn and figure out with the engineers and the vendors. The vendors did a phenomenal mm -hmm. job. Um, but I think in terms of the LNPs themselves, the other aspect was the quality of the lipid raw materials was mm -hmm. absolutely critical to success. Mm -hmm. And we recognized in particular with some of the lipids, we would strip the global capacity to make these lipids, mm -hmm. especially the proprietary lipids, probably within four to six weeks. And we needed a year's supply. Mm -hmm. So for some of the lipids, the cationic lipid in particular, we then evaluated eight different vendors and we worked with them to make the same lipid. And for the other lipid, it was maybe seven or eight, lip, seven or eight different vendors, cholesterol from multiple lent vendors. And then we needed to make sure that each of those flavors of cationic polymeric lipid cholesterol would work well with each other to give ourselves the flexibility. So you can imagine the factorial mm -hmm. we had to do. So I'd say looking at the process, recognizing that we couldn't scale up, we had to scale out. 
looking at lipid vendors and the quality of the lipids, the raw materials is absolutely critical because it wasn't a single vendor with a single quality standard. We had to make sure we did this on a global scale with multiple vendors. I think as we move forward, looking to other vaccines or other therapeutic areas, it may not be as, as urgent as what we were doing with COVID, but it may be equally critical to get those right raw materials and the right scale of manufacturing, mm -hmm. even if it's small, relatively small-scale rare disease. Can I add a bit to that question? So you talked about the supply chain of the various components of the LMP. Uh, was that the reason why you selected that particular LMP, or were there other considerations? Yeah, so that LMP came to us from our partner, BioNTech. Mm. And one of the reasons we wanted to, we, we obviously were in a hurry, we wanted to get this done. We did not have the opportunity to further optimize mm -hmm. that LNP. One of the keys to success, I think, was we leveraged BioNTech's prior experience mm -hmm. and we leveraged Pfizer's prior mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. Pfizer did not have years and years or decades of experience with RNA LNPs, BioNTech mm -hmm. did. But we understood how to make drugs, how to scale up engineering, logistics, supply mm -hmm. chain, how to run a 40,000 patient phase three clinical trial. Um, so we leveraged each company's strengths. Similarly, we worked with about 180 vendors across, um, no, 180 raw materials from 65 vendors in 18 countries and leveraged their experience. And bringing that all together, focusing in one single direction really helped us out. So leveraging everybody's expertise and not overstepping our boundaries was really critical to success. I mean, you start laying out some of those numbers and they're pretty mind-boggling. I remember having conversations trying to explain to people that, you know, for whom math isn't their strength, what a billion doses means and how quickly you have to manufacture something to make a billion of anything. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that one of the keys to moving quickly was uh, pursuing parallel paths and then having a, a fairly rigorous decision-making process. Uh, you've talked before about, you know, um, well, actually, you published in the paper that you explored uh, full-length spike proteins as well as receptor binding domain approaches as well as self-amplifying RNA. And some of the decisions, you obviously made the right decision for you in the moment. I guess I'm thinking about, do you still feel like that's the same conclusion you reached today? Is it the same conclusion you might reach for other vaccines or other therapeutic areas? You know, there's a, a lot of effort. I think we heard yesterday 35 or 40 companies working in the RNA space now. So, you know, where, where do you see kind of that going for both vaccines and other therapeutics? Yeah, I think if we focus on vaccines specifically, there will be pros and cons to any of the RNA modalities uh, that one uses and the target antigens that you're looking for. I think early on, we needed to get something that worked. And so you go with the clinical data, you go with what is expedient, make sure you're going to get a nice, robust antigenic response that you're going to solve the problem. Once you get an opportunity to catch your breath, then there's an opportunity to optimize, to explore preclinically, explore clinically uh, different antigens, different part of, say, the spike protein or coat proteins or uh, anything else that you're looking to get a, an immune response to. I think that's where we are right now. That's where a lot of companies are right now. Do you need self-amplifying RNA? What are the pros and cons of that relative to the mRNA we're working on right now? Um, if you explore that beyond vaccines and you start looking at, as we heard earlier, uh, rare disease, siRNAs, if you start looking at um, gene editing, for example, the LNPs may need to be different depending on the, the tissue uh, tropism you're looking for. 
Are you looking for CNS, liver? Liver is relative, is easier. You know, CNS is gonna be hard. So where do you want to go with your, uh, where do you want to deliver it? And then what's the RNA you want to do? Gene editing is going to be a very different beast because it's two pieces of RNA versus, say, a vaccine. But with vaccines, you may have, you will probably have multiple antigens that you want to encode, which is where we are right now with a bivalent vaccine. Uh, if it's flu, it's going to be tetravalent. Um, so it'll all depend on what you're trying to achieve, whether it's a vaccine, whether it's gene editing, whether it's interference. And the lipids will have various contributions to that, whether it's delivery to the cytosol or to the nucleus, whether there's a stability challenge. Um, we obviously can't live with minus 80 storage forever and ever. You know, we need to figure that one out. Um, other companies ha are working towards that, so are we. I think that's one of the challenges that we need to work through if we really want to make this a globally accepted product without the real challenges that we're existing with the supply chain right now. Good. Uh, back to the LNP again. Um, you talked a little bit about sort of going with uh, your partner BioNTech. They had the experience. You went with that LNP for the speed of the COVID vaccine. But if you sort of look a bit more into the future, what are some of the uh, evolution of the LNP platforms that you think we should conduct in order to optimize efficacy, safety, and also uh, patient accessibility and distribution and stability? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. The mm. uh, first and foremost is the effectiveness of the delivery to the cytosol, if, mm. if it's a vaccine, for example. Uh, are there lipid nanoparticles? Are there constructs? Are there things we can optimize? with either the polymeric lipid or the cationic lipid that increases the delivery of the RNA intact to the cytosol. So that's, that's job one, because that increases our effectiveness, whether it's immunogenicity or gene editing or what have you. So I think that's going to be a key aspect to explore. Um, we need to make sure we can get the raw materials, that they, they can be synthesized at scale at a reasonable price. So obviously that's, that's a factor. On the last part, I think the accessibility, that's critical. Mm -hmm. And right now, when we manufacture product, we store it uh, under frozen conditions, ultra-low temperature. We distribute on dry ice. A pharmacist receives it. They can refrigerate it for 10 weeks, uh, mm -hmm. and then that allows them to, to, to dose a patient. During a pandemic, that was marginally acceptable. Um, I think as under once the pandemic settles down and we're in endemic circumstances, that's going to be really a challenge. So the good news with RNA is it's, it's tremendously agile. You know, if you look at what we did with the bivalent, Verpac was June 30th, where Verpac came out and said, we want a bivalent of the original wild type, a 50-50 mix of that, plus Omicron BA4-5. And then August 30th, uh, 60 days later, we were granted EUA. Now, we, we got a head start on that, but it takes about 100 days to come up with a new product and, and to get through EUA. Um, that agility is great, but the cost is convenience. The cost is that we have a stability challenge in front of us. So our teams are looking at, well, what can we do to manufacture this to be a, prop, a refrigerated product? Uh, maybe seasonal. You know, we may not need to get five years shelf life because if it's seasonal like flu, it may be an annual, that type of thing. Uh, but we need to do better than 10 weeks. So I think that's going to be the challenge. And lots of companies are looking at this either with better lipids or better formulations or manufacturing processes. Yeah, maybe just to build on that a little bit, this, you know, this fast turn cycles, 
you know, obviously there's real patient benefit, especially when it comes to addressing new variants. But it does make me wonder, you know, how is Pfizer thinking about integrating some of these improvements on their kind of delivery platform, if you will, into that? And, you know, are there regulatory or commercial concerns if you discover much more stable uh, nanoparticle composition, you know, how, how do you build that into a 100-day cycle? That's going to be a challenge. <laughs> yeah. I think um, if you have a proven platform, like an RNA now, after three years, an RNA LNP, that has a good safety profile, that has good manufacturability, is somewhat predictable, then in principle, at least internally, making those tweaks, you know, changing the uh, oligonucleotide sequence of the plasmid, which changes the RNA, which gives you a different product, is going to be much more predictable internally, and hopefully will be equally predictable to a regulator. And so that way you can leverage your previous safety experience. I mean, right now we have safety data on roughly a billion patients. Um, we don't want to walk away from that too quickly because if we have a good track record, let's leverage that moving forward, similar to other platform approaches. Um, I think with other therapeutic areas and other modalities, you have to leverage that safety database, leverage that manufacturing experience. And then if that can be brought forward to a regulator in partnership, that should allow a quicker review, uh, a quicker turnaround, but it has to be that partnership. FDA and the other regulators around, around the globe were fantastic to work with. One, they were working very, very hard. It was not unusual for us, our teams, to get off the phone at midnight with FDA, hang up the phone. At 5 a.m., they would send us a note, well, we've been at this for another five hours. Here's six questions. Can you please get back to us at noon? So we would get our sleep from midnight till six, they get their sleep from 6 to 11, and then noon you get another conference. Uh, and this cycle that the regulators did was really remarkable. FDA and the other regulators just really worked hard. Yeah. It's an incredible journey. Thank you so much for sharing it with us, Nick. I, I think it's also a great lead-in to our next conversation. We're gonna be having a panel about the future of RNA. We've heard how Pfizer dealt with uh, the actual pandemic itself, so now we'll transition that. And I think some of your points are gonna be well taken for the next panel. Yep. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for sharing with us. We hope you enjoyed this podcast recording from The Pod, Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery 2022 Conference. For more information, please visit podconference.com.